Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast, where we sit down with everyday people who do extraordinary things. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Welcome, everybody, to another interview show. Today, I sit down with Elaine, who is the other half of Russ, who was on the show uh, two shows ago, I guess, and uh, she recently retired from a full-on career as a professor of chemistry and uh, fully tenured everything. We get into some of that. We talk sailing. We pretty much sort of bounce around all over the place. It was really great to sit down with her, so big, big thanks for her taking some time with me today. Before I get into this one, though, I did want to... I, I sort of alluded to that website, Sail Junkie, on the last uh, last little intro, and... I actually wanted to, I, I was reading through it uh, today, and I, I sort of just read the title of one of the, one of the um, articles in there, but I actually read through the whole thing today, and I was like, oh, this is really cool. So, Sail Junkie, you can go sailjunkie.com, but this one is Want Some Cash. Sail Junkie Magazine is willing to put up some cash for articles we select that are contributed this summer. $100. I know it's not groundbreaking cash, but hey, we do have a budget. As a matter of fact, this site generates zero revenue, but we are still willing to put our pennies together to try and grow this online community. So if you've got an interesting story, you can submit it on their website, and uh, if they choose it, they will send you 100 bucks, And that's pretty cool for uh, uh, a little sailing story. So I don't know. Any of my listeners out there got a few uh, something interesting? I was thinking of maybe, if I can find some time, putting together a little little story about how all of a sudden we went from Mighty Sparrow being here at Night Marine to all of a sudden having three West Sail 32s hauled out and what it's like to have an on-land mini rendezvous. So ideas like that, and maybe that can help Mike uh, grow his platform and... Uh, Get into it. So there's another shout out for you, Mike. Thanks again for all your support. And without further ado, let's get into the podcast. Before I do, though, I always have to say, if you want to support the show, head over to Pod or Patreon, and uh, you can become a part of our Patreon family for which this show continues. Thanks for that, and enjoy. Well, Elaine, thank you for coming on the show. You're welcome. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Is, it, is this your first time you've ever done a podcast? Yes. <laughs> okay, very cool. Well, yeah. Yeah. I like I said, I mean, we're we're sort of branching out, so to speak, with this. And uh, although, obviously, you're part of the core uh, people that I, I typically have because you live on a sailboat, at least yeah. in the summertime. Yep. And how long yeah. have you done that for? Oh, well, I guess it's probably about six years um, coming over to Maine. But then we had taken a couple trips when our kids were little and essentially lived for two summers and traveled when they were young. Oh, okay. So, you know, did that in the past and then... Whereabout yeah. was that? Oh, so, well, let's see. The um, the first trip... Well, which one was the first? We, the first trip we took, we went down to the bottom of Lake Champlain, uh, went uh, through the uh, Champlain Canal, hooked up with the Mohawk River... And then you end up out in Lake um, Ontario. Oh, okay. So we did a bit like a circuit because I was like Lake, Lake Ontario through the Thousand Islands 
then through Montreal, then you come down through uh, Chamblay Canal, and then you hook back up. I think part of it was also the Richelieu River. Oh, okay. Uh, and then you're into the top part of Lake Champlain, and so it was just a big circuit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of like a mini Great Loop. Yeah, like a mini Great Loop, yeah, about seven weeks, because I, you know, at that point I was working, you know, full-time, um, so, you know, we only got the seven, eight weeks in the summer. Gotcha, yeah. Um, and our second trip was going down um, to, uh, go again, retracing some of the same, and then down around the city, um, out into Long Island Sound, bop all around the sound for several weeks i've always oh, wanted and, to do that then, that that whole area it actually yeah. kind of scares me a little bit because i'm solo oh and yeah. so everything is just a little more a intensified little closer, right yeah, yeah it's kind of like oh yeah. if something yeah. i need to attend to something down below then all of a sudden you know the boat's just moving yeah and you're you're not out there with lots of water space yeah and there's yeah. a lot more boats too it's pretty so, heavy traffic right yeah yeah it can be yeah especially on the weekends do you go like um, right around manhattan and all that sort of yeah, stuff yeah yeah go right around manhattan yep go right around um yeah we uh uh we got let's see we got around manhattan went through the notorious hell's gate which was no big deal at all we've been through that yeah what, times. what is it about that is I, it just the name I think it's just the name mainly. I mean, we've passed through it several times now, and it's never really been a big deal. I mean, you kind of pay attention so that you're going to be hitting it at sort of optimal conditions for current and everything. Yeah, because it's all tidal, right? It's all tidal, and and you got to kind of pay attention to that. But I don't know. We never had any big issue at all getting through that area. Uh, And I think it narrows and... You know, and it's really lots of traffic. Lots of too. traffic, there can be yeah. Lots and lots of traffic. So. Have you gone yeah. through the Cape Cod Canal? Yes, we have. Yep. What would, yeah. How would it compare to that? Oh, uh, well, Cape Cod Canal is a lot like wider, and um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was wider, and we didn't have any problem with the Cape Cod Canal. There wasn't that much traffic the day we went through that. Well, I, I, mean, I don't yeah. do do like tankers and stuff go through the Cape Cod Canal. Yeah, I'm not I'm not really sure. I kind of yeah. feel like because they they have when I look at a chart of that whole area like Cape Cod and stuff, they have all the traffic separation schemes all over, you know, going basically out and then around Nantucket down south and then back into Long Island. Yeah, I don't remember anything really big in there, so maybe they're. Oh, maybe they might they have don't. to. Yeah, they might not maybe be not. able to. But in yeah. Hell's Gate, you get that stuff, right? You can get some of that stuff. But it's also fairly narrow, so I imagine they maybe take alternative routes, too. Yeah, I don't know it, it, where the yeah. port, what, what yeah, sort of offload port yeah, is sure. around New York. but I mean, there are some offload ports that are on the, um, what would be the western side of Manhattan and stuff. But that's, Hell's Gate is on the other side. Yeah. So I don't know that you get any really huge stuff going through. Although we, I mean, one time I rode, just did like a one or two night on the um, Mystic Whaler, which is the boat that Russ has been on many times. And we actually went through at night. It was actually pretty cool because we rounded Manhattan at night Uh, on that and then went through Hell's Gate. Yeah. And got all around to the other side. Um, But we did it, you know, late at night, which is actually really cool and really pretty. Um, Is there less traffic at that point, I would assume? Yeah. Yeah. Because that boat's like 110 feet, I think. Yeah. Well, and you're not the one in charge of it either. Yeah. Yeah, that always helps. (laughs) And they always like it. I don't know if they do it in the daytime, but they always had like spotters, you know, up on the bow. Oh, I'm sure you have to. Because it's so long. Well, and just, I, you know, it doesn't have a turning radius. Probably has the same turning radius to this boat. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. Probably less. (laughs) Uh, Maybe less, yeah. 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 Oh, man. No, we had good times. Um, 
We had real good times taking our kids when they still wanted to go out with us. And uh, Oh, those did, little bums. They don't like come. Do they ever come and visit? Up um, here in Maine? Actually, um, our younger daughter has come and, and visited in Maine. Um, actually, they both did. I mean, before my older daughter was married and had a kid, she'd come a couple times. Yeah. Um, but they didn't necessarily want to be like staying on the boat anymore. You know, the idea of. Yeah. They, they would come and they would tend and stuff. You it know, gets a little, a little tight. It's a little cozy. How how big is the yours? The Cape Dory. It's a Cape Dory thirty six. Um, I mean, in principle, we could sleep five. Yeah. But you know, the most we've ever had on there is four. Right, and, right. And um, that was it, when it was two younger kids, right? Well, that, that was actually on our previous boat, which was a twenty eight. Oh, um, they, oh, the wow. trips with them was on a twenty eight. Yeah. Um, and they were kind of captive audience. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't really have much say. They didn't in the, have uh, much say in the matter. Um, <laughs> but as they've gotten older, you know, it's kind of like, no, nah, it's too close for comfort and stuff. We'll charter our own boat, Mom. How's Never. that sound? <laughs> <laughs> I remember well, my parents, uh, they had chartered down in the BVI when I was actually down there on this boat. And so that worked out really well for me because I could follow them around and all that sort of stuff and then anchor near them and everything but i always had my own boat to to be able yeah. to go back to i don't know i think it would be i don't think it would be hard i i would i would for sure do it but hopping onto you know a boat with the whole family for me just because i've spent so much time alone on a boat i think it would be a little difficult but i would yeah. give it a shot yeah yeah well a couple of years ago uh, my two sisters came to visit they live in california and, and they actually spent like three nights in a row with us. But, you know, during the days, it's like we got off the boat. We went and we did stuff, you know. We stayed really active off the boat all day long. So that right, yeah. you weren't like together on the boat that long, you know. Well, that definitely helps, yeah. Because yeah, it, it's only a matter of time. I mean, I my experience with being on boats with lots of people is typically on like yacht deliveries. So you're all yeah. stuck on that boat. But with those, at least, because you're doing the yacht, the, the watch system, Right, you're a lot rotating, of the time yeah. people are sleeping, so you don't really see them. There was one trip from South Africa to the Caribbean. There were three of us on the boat, and I think we were all only together, usually at dinner time. And then uh -huh. after that, it was you know somebody would go up, and that was a catamaran, so there was a lot of space. Uh huh. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we we like having our privacy, and just I don't know. It's it's the boat is a really really nice size for two people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. No, it really is. I, 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 this one being just a little bit smaller, um, I've had other people on board for a few days at a time and, and one trip, uh, all the way up from South Carolina, I had a buddy of mine from the Appalachian trail come and that was, that was pretty cool. Actually. I, it was different. I thought it was going to be a bit of a nightmare initially. <laughs> um, just cause you know, you get so used to being on your own and everything is set up how you want it and, and all that. Mm -hmm. But it actually, it was a nice change of pace. Cause I'd also done that trip a couple of times. So that, that sort of helped, but I don't know. There's, I, re I remember reading in one of Bernard Montissier's books, I think it was his first one. And he initially, this is the, the story where he goes and he, he ends up wrecking two boats in this one book. And it's his <laughs> beginning of, of sailing, essentially, um, out on the oceans. But he gets to, 
Uh, the Caribbean, and he's just sailing, I think, from like St. Martin or something like that down to St. Vincent, and he brings somebody with him, and he describes them as being this alien invader that is now on the boat, because he spent so much time alone on this boat. He sailed it all the way from like Indonesia. Um, so I don't know. I was kind of worried. I was like, I wonder if I'm going to start freaking out. You know, we're going to be offshore. There's not going to be a way for me to just yeah, pull no, off and yeah, drop right, them right, off. Right, yeah. But no, and, and it's uh, my buddy Ben. Uh, so if he listens to this, it was a great time, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want him to think it was, uh, I was just worried in the beginning, but you made it perfect. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Yeah. So what, what do you have planned for the summer? Uh, well, not a real lot. Uh, I think we're going to go off and at least connect up a little bit in the next week or so with some friends. Um, and then, uh, we do have this Cape Dory rally thing that we do, uh, the first week in, um, August. Oh, okay. And this uh, year, it sounds like they're going to focus on places in Casco Bay. Um, and, uh, we bop around for like five, six nights and, you know. How, how far uh, away is Casco Bay? Oh, I don't know. A day. Oh, okay. Day. So it's up in it, this area. It's, it's down I always get down west. It's no, down west. It's up west. Well, they say I don't. They get say the, down east. Yeah, I don't get this down east because to me that's like northeast. Yeah, yeah, I know, and then I know. yeah, it's <laughs> southwest. Southwest. <laughs> yeah, of I, don't us, know, yeah. I feel like I'd, I'd have to look at a map, but I think you know you can probably get into the Casco Bay area within a day, day and a half. Okay, and how many boats are there? Oh, it, it varies. Um, probably generally you know seven to ten some people will only come for like you know part of it you know some people might connect for a day or two go off and do something different or come at the end it's it's not like we're all traveling exactly the same yeah yeah um, but people kind of hop in and out and so forth and, and is everybody um, sort of peering into everybody's boats and checking some, out sometimes we'll do modifications. like yeah yeah there's you know there's a lot of talk about you know what you've done to your boat the modifications you've made you know problems of, like, that you yeah have problems you've addressed oh you had that happen this is how we dealt with it you know right, there's right. a lot of that um they tend to like try to do like a you know sort of the end of the day is usually maybe a happy hour on somebody's boat so we sort of you know yeah get to check out different yeah comes together right yeah uh, and then and you then, only have to really clean your boat nice once right right yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> all right good time to clean yeah and then we usually usually it start this thing will start out with like we'll go out to dinner somewhere the first night of it and then we usually go out to dinner somewhere else the second night of it so that stuff has to get you know lined up ahead of time and so yeah, forth yeah yeah oh that's kind of cool some of the places you know we tend to you know pick up moorings in various places so those things have to be reserved ahead of time and so forth yeah because so, there there yeah. just really isn't a whole lot of dockage up in maine compared to i don't know like south carolina it seems like everywhere you go there's marina after marina after marina and With, so it's yeah. Yeah, when when you have meetups like that, everybody's tied up to the same dock or they're rafting up and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, there's yeah, I don't I'm trying to think if we've ever been on a dock with this group. I don't think so. I don't think so. We haven't hardly ever done docks yeah. ourselves. I've seen pictures yeah. of uh the West Sale rendezvous that they have and those do it looks pretty neat, you know, you've got seven or eight of the exact same boat, you know, all lined, lined up, up and it's, everybody's it's touring cool. them and stuff. And and yeah. now here at the marina we've got or at the boat yard, we've got three West Sails pulled out of the water right now. Oh, really? We're oh, a mini, okay. technically, we're a rendezvous for this <laughs> next week. Yeah, this one guy came out uh, 
I think it was either Thursday or Friday. I pressure washed his hull for him. Huh. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah, that's cool. Now, yeah. he's been on the boat, but he said he wanted some time to clean up his before I went on there. So, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Yeah. yeah I always yeah. have to sort of keep down below pretty clean because I never know who's going to pop up for a quick little podcast <laughs> discussion. You know? It's a good incentive to... Uh, to always keep, but also, I mean, with the amount of dust that's flying around in the yard, if you don't wipe everything down every three days, it just builds up. It's pretty gross. Yeah. As you it, know. As I know. Are, yeah. yeah. It makes a huge difference. Once we're in the water, it's like, wow, this isn't so bad anymore. Yeah. You yeah. get it clean and then it's like, it stays, stays clean. reasonably clean. <laughs> yeah. Right. I could probably pressure wash the, the deck every day and have brown filth running off of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. man, it's uh, I don't know. I I like the boat life for sure, and it's been I think six years now, five years, no six years that I've been living aboard. You guys are on like six years of just doing the summers. They're just right? doing the summers, but that can all change now. I know it's so crazy. Congratulations, <laughs> you have just retired after yes. how many years? Thirty six years uh, at, at the place I was at. Yeah. Wow. Man, yeah, you, what was your, uh, do you want to tell us what you were doing? Okay. You don't have so, to, I always focus on a little anonymity. That's why I only use like first names. Okay. Because yeah. in case yeah. this episode goes crazy viral, I wouldn't want stalkers to come looking for you and all that. <laughs> I don't think Former it Former students. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There she is. <laughs> I failed organic chemistry. <laughs> How dare you? Yeah, exactly. So we'll just uh, leave out the names, but you can tell us anything and everything else you want. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so I uh, I was a chemistry professor, and um, uh, thirty six years in the same place uh, doesn't really seem possible when I reflect <laughs> when I reflect back that it could have been that long, um, but uh, it was uh, you know um, I mean I had a great career I I really still um, very much enjoyed teaching right up to the end. Um, but I was getting pretty, you know, kind of weary of um, some of the service work and committee work. Um, yeah, the other stuff it, that goes the, into it. The other stuff that goes into it. Um, in the place where I was at, uh, there's three primary um, responsibilities, uh, three categories, uh, teaching. Um, and then, uh, you know, research, scholarship, and then service. And I just reached a point um, in the last few years where I really only wanted to teach. Yeah. Um, and was really, you know, phasing out of doing any kind of um, research, especially because I was a laboratory research person and I just really was, you know, wanting to get out of that. All of a sudden, as I'm a chemist and I was started to get more concerned about being exposed to nasty chemicals. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, oh, uh, you know, and that was on my mind more uh, later in my career and so forth. And um, so what, can I ask you, so does that put you and you, you're spending more time in like a small classroom setting in a lab or are you lecturing? Well, in... so, um, I mean, for me, my teaching was, was a mix. Okay. So, um, I, I did, uh, I, I did lectures. So I, for example, um, one of my biggest, um, areas of teaching was, um, biochemistry. So I would do, I would do, <laughs> I would do lectures and that would be um, three times a week lectures, and then the, that course also would include a three-hour uh, lab every week. Yeah. So it's kind of split between the two. And how um, did you like being up in front of all those people? Um, I, 
I mean, I, you like, must have got used to it. I, I got used to it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I still would get very, very nervous like the first week. Oh, like in front of a new break group. And stuff? Well, yeah and, yeah, and with a new group, you know, just kind of getting a feel for the group. Now, most of the classes I taught were relatively small. Like the largest, the largest would be like 16 people, and that would be a good size class for me. Oh, okay, okay. So generally, it was more like, you know, 10 to 12 or something. Um, but I'd always get really nervous the first week or so. Um, and I figured that was kind of a good thing because then it meant I still cared about you know, what I was doing and right, how right. I came yeah, across, that's a good point. Yeah. you know, so, you know, it didn't really bother me. And then once I kind of got to know the group and got their names down, um, you know, then I'd sort of chill out and feel better about it. Um, but, yeah. and then, uh, but yeah, the, the, the lab stuff, um, these, by the time I'd have students, these would be students who'd had quite a lot of lab experience. Um, so I would sort of, um, spend I put the biggest emphasis on actually getting them into the laboratory and getting their hands, you know, um, you know, hands-on work going. Yeah, and yeah. Less, you know, I'm not a big uh, lecturer when it comes to the lab stuff. Um, well, you're I, only going to be able to yeah. retain so much from a lecture anyway, but you get your hands dirty and you start pulling things apart and putting them together. and Yeah, and, you know, gathering data and processing data. And, uh, you know, so I, tried, I really worked very hard at, you know, trying to give students really meaningful lab, you know, experiences, hands, hands-on experiences. Was it, um, uh, was it undergrad or undergrad? Under, oh, no, it's undergrad. Undergrad, uh, okay. Uh, yeah, uh, undergrad only, um, at least in the sciences where I was. And, um, but yeah, but because I taught mostly upper-level courses, most of my students would be juniors or seniors, so, and they'd be science majors, so yeah. by then they're usually pretty settled. They know what they want, um, you know, they're committed a little more um, serious students. Much more serious. Much more serious students. Freshmen. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, I'm sure you had to deal <laughs> with quite a bit of that, though. Yes, some, not a ton. Um, I mean, I did teach. One of the other areas that I've taught uh, and hopped in and out of for my whole career was organic chemistry. So, um, I mean, I had I had done organic chemistry lectures and so forth, but the last decade or so is mostly just focusing on doing um, labs with organic, you know, students. When they say and organic, or when you or say organic, organic chemistry, chemistry what, what exactly does that mean? And forgive mm -hmm. my ignorance, I, I was uh, not, not a great student, if you can believe that. <laughs> um, so organic chemistry is basically uh, the chemistry of uh, carbon, so carbon-containing compounds. Um, so that includes, I mean, all kinds of, you know, polymers of tons of carbon in them and all kinds of medicine and drugs and i mean our bodies you know we're carbon we're, creatures, you know, yeah we? we're yeah. carbon creatures you know we've got you know, loads and loads of carbon containing compounds so um and, and in my mind always like organic chemistry is really very foundational to understanding biochemistry biochemistry is focused more on what's going on within living systems but how they're those actually are, working yeah. yeah and how they're actually working and the processes that occur and so forth so you know for me biochemistry was sort of a really natural um step for me because i always was really very interested in um you know understanding what happens you know uh, within living systems and at the molecular level within living systems so you have to really have a very sound grounding in the organic chemistry yeah, to oh, really dig deep into, you know, biochemistry, especially if you really want to understand, you know, what's happening, you know, at the molecular level. Yeah. And then what's, ha you know, you know, the normal state versus, okay, now we've got, you know, a disease state and what's going awry and, 
Yeah, and then why it's is also, the cancer cell yeah. starting to take off and all that sort of yeah. stuff? And then even just, you know, then if you're, you know, if you're branching into things like, um, you know, uh, pharmacology, then it's okay. You know, how does this drug work? You know, what exactly is it doing? You know, again, for me, it was always, I want to understand what it's doing at the molecular level. Yeah, yeah. You know, where is it interfering, you know, with the function of a biological catalyst, uh, which are called enzymes, Um, you know, or, you know, can we design, you know, one of the ideas uh, when you have these deeper understandings is can we design you know, drugs and treatments that are more specific to the problem. And therefore, if you're more specific to the problem, hopefully you're going to be reducing bad side effects. Yeah. You know, can we minimize, you know. Oh, so it's not like trying to like blanket the whole area of something that's trying to go wrong, but actually specifically nailing that little head and boom, make that stop and then correct itself. Yeah. Yeah. Was yeah, this like, it, how 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 old do you think you were when you first sort of really found a passion? You must have a passion for it. Um, to do it yeah, for that long and yeah, at I that do. Level. I'm well. I mean, that's kind of yeah. That's that's an interesting question. Um, so I I mean, as a high school student, I was you know a student who was very inclined towards math and science. But like I, straight also, A's, no problem. No, I was never you know I was not exactly a straight A student. Um, no, I mean I was close. But I was never absolutely straight A. I did an A minus once. I mean, I showed that inclination even in high school, but yeah, it was, we're talking the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. So for you know, a female to show math and science you know, uh, abilities, yeah. you know, I was advised. You know, to, to, to think about a career like a nurse or something, you know, healthcare, but not. Nobody ever suggested I could be an MD or a doctor or a scientist. Wow, I mean, how times was, have changed. Yeah, times have changed because it was just, um, and and I remember, you know, I, I ended up um, settling on um, physical therapy. So I went, I specifically went to a college that had a physical therapy program mm-hmm. because that was like something that was considered acceptable for a female. Yeah. with math science inclinations and um so i ended up going to a college very specifically for the physical therapy program a woman's college by the way and um and then i got like through the first year i was required this was a requirement for the physical therapy program is required to take a year of general chemistry um and and again it was all women and i was a top student both semesters oh and, kudos. there um, you go and and somewhere in that year, um, the professor, I remember Roger Armstrong, and um, he pulled me aside and he, you know, he and he said, "Have you ever talked? Have you ever thought about majoring in a science? You know, because you, you're clearly really good at chemistry." Yeah. And I said, "No." Um, <laughs> and he's trying to get me to come and talk to him about it. So come to, I'll just come and just have a conversation with me. And this is while I'm still a freshman. And I said, "No." Um, I'm going to be a physical therapist, you know, that's decided. And that was something that was, you know... Accept- I know what I'm uh, doing. Yeah. I am a freshman. <laughs> <laughs> How old are you at, 18? Uh, yeah, 18, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I get through that first year, and um, and then the second year, the fall of the second year, was um, they took us into uh, sort of like an introductory course as to what physical therapy was all about, and it included, I, I just remember the um, professor telling us, well, he said, many of you come into this field thinking that 
uh, oh, you're going to, you know, you're going to work with young people and you're going to work with athletes and, you know, that kind of stuff. And basically, if that's what your thoughts are, you know, you're off track because the majority of the people that you're going to work with are going to be um, old people. Yeah, people that injure themselves. Yeah, and but older people. And it's not, you know, most of you will not end up, you know, working with young people. So if you're, your idea is that you're going to work with young people, sort of dispel that right here and now. I'm going to work for the <laughs> NBA. Yeah, like that, right? <laughs> That's yeah. sort of the dream job of it, or the rock star <laughs> side of it, I yeah. suppose. So that, and that was kind of eye-opening for me. Um, my mother was actually, at that point in time, my mother was actually a geriatric nurse um, in, a, in a nursing home. And so I'd actually had quite a bit of experience and exposure to some of that. And I was kind of like, I wasn't sure. I, it doesn't speak very well of me as a person, but I was like, I don't no, know that I, no, no. You, don't you know have that to I follow your work. passions. I, yeah. I'm a firm believer that if you try and do something because you, outside of your own passions, you know, maybe you'll be good at it. But if you actually follow your passion and the thing that you really, really love doing, then you're going to make a far greater impact in that field than you would anything yeah. else. Cause it's, I think passion drives people even above money and there's very yeah. few things in this world that do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. So I'll get partway, you know, partway through my sophomore year, end of my fall semester sophomore. And I'm all of a sudden like, I don't think I want to be a physical therapist. I don't think this is what I want to do. I really had, and, and they also, we, we had to go visit like the gross anatomy lab and, the brain lab. What's that? The gross anatomy is I've when you do a cadaver. Okay, when you do a, it, it, at least it used to be that training for physical therapy included that you dissected a cadaver. Oh, uh, yeah. So man. we we got to tour, you know, the various labs that we would have in our advanced courses, kind of, you know, see whether you had a stomach for it or yeah, not, what and stuff was like that. that. Like? Did you? I mean, I was totally. I I can't do that. I just so I you just at, walked I just, out. I just, I said, I can't do that. Holy and, cow. You know, I was like, so that was really kind of the clincher of, okay, I don't really think I'm in the right was field. Is it like I, mid-cut? Sorry to harp on does. this, but I'm trying to wrap my head around what it would be like. Well, what do they call that first cut through the chest? And, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, think, so you must you were standing there, and there's, there's a body there. Yep. Was it a male or a female? I don't remember. <laughs> oh, we blocked it out of your memory. <laughs> Impressive. We were just watching. You know, we weren't. Oh, you were just watching. We weren't participating. No, partici no. Oh, no, this oh, was all like okay. in preparation for, I mean, this intro course was all to sort of, you know, show you what was ahead and make sure everybody kind of, you know, knew. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're going to do a cadaver in two years and, you know, oh. Oh, or a year and a half or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, uh. I'm pretty sure that's not standard at all anymore. Um, no, thank you. Yeah. But, uh, anyway, so I just, by the end of that, you know, fall semester, sophomore year, I was like, oh my gosh, I, this is, I can't do this. This isn't what I don't like. And I really had reservations anyways that, you know, it was hard for me to vocalize. And uh, so I remember I went back to Dr. Armstrong. Um, oh, the one at, who was it, always the, telling the, you to come and talk to him. Yeah, yeah. So I went back to him at the end of that fall semester. And I said, I said, okay, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean I'm, let's talk about science and chemistry and stuff like that because i really don't think i'm in the right place with this you know, major yeah so you know we sat and he told me about all kinds of opportunities and stuff like that and he said to me he said well you know uh, my college at that time ran these um january term courses and it was like one course you know over four weeks super intense the only class you're taking yeah and he said to me he says i'm going to be teaching an industrial chemistry course in the january term he says you should take that class and I said, 
uh, but isn't that just taken by chemistry majors? And he said, well, yeah, yeah, it is normally only... And I said, I haven't even taken organic chemistry yet. Yeah, yeah, I know. But you, you could teach yourself all the organic chemistry you need to know. He said, you'll wow. do fine. And I'm like, confidence in you. Um, and, and so I ended up taking the class. And I had to work my ass off because there were a lot of stuff I just hadn't been exposed to. Yeah. He was a great teacher. I mean, he was an amazing teacher. Um, but there was a lot of stuff that I hadn't been exposed to. Everybody else in there was a chem major. And uh, so I ended up buckling down, and I taught myself everything I needed to know to get through the stuff he was trying to teach. Yeah. And I absolutely loved it. And, oh, wow. Yeah. So then I, you know, in the spring of that sophomore year, I, I switched over to chemistry. But it was so, but it set me back because, you know, I'd missed like the sophomore year would have been the year I normally would have been taking organic chemistry. Right. I jump ahead and take this advanced industrial chemistry course. <laughs> um, but then, um, but, but one of the really toughest parts was that um, I told my parents um, that, you know, I wanted to switch majors um, out of physical therapy into chemistry. And the, their reaction was, well, then you don't need to go to this expensive school that special, you know, you oh, got to go, right, you gotta go right. somewhere else you know, yeah. and, you let the, and transfer to one of these, um, you know, uh, colleges, you know, SUNY College or something like that. And that, I wasn't expecting that at all. Like, what um, do you mean? You know, because, of course, you know, and you've been there for a while, and your friends and settled in. And I really, you know, part of what really made me decide to go to chemistry was, you know, this professor who was very influential, and I started to get to know the other professors in the department. And Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to switch schools. Well, I want to stay here. And well, you better I, get a job. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, so, and my, you know, my parents were like, it was costing more money to go to this, you know, s small private college. Well, and just, uh, just for reference, I mean, a small private college back then, what do you think the tuition would have been? Oh, gosh. A couple of grand? Yeah, probably. probably talking Which, maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe five, six to eight, something like eight. that, maybe. I'm not sure. And now it would ago. probably be forty to sixty thousand, I think, something yeah, like that. Yeah, well, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, uh, anyways, I, you know, my, you know, they were, my parents were particularly concerned about. Um, well, first of all, they were concerned about the, you know, the, the, the fact that this was a more expensive institution, and then also um, my father in particular. Um, it's like, well, that's just not practical. It's not a practical field for a woman. You know, you need something where, you know, you could go in and out of being a nurse or you could go in and out. Like, you know, you could, you know, basically, you know, you're going to follow your husband wherever he goes. And I've you heard need that story from my mom as well. She, you know, yeah, you yeah. need something that you can, you know, you can do for a while, but then you could take a break if you're having children and raising a family and staying at home. And, 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 and chemistry just made no sense. And uh, as far sounds as like he was underestimating your abilities to uh, conquer well, this world of ours. <laughs> well, one of the interesting things is actually my father was my high school chemistry teacher. He was a science <laughs> teacher. Really? Yeah. Yeah. He was he was my high school chemistry teacher. And he also was a very, very good teacher. Uh, just a really, yeah, just a great teacher. And so, I, I mean, I kind of think. He, I wonder why he would have thought that. I wonder if he, do you think possibly he thought like, I want you to be able to succeed more in life than he did possibly i guess i'm not sure what you're asking like, like if if i i guess do you think that he would have thought oh well if you go into this chemistry stuff you're probably gonna end up just being 
or, and I shouldn't say just being that, that definitely comes off wrong, but being a high school chemistry teacher like I was, you think he was trying to do something to get you to, I don't know. Because you know how you always want your kids to succeed more than you? Yeah. 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 I mean, maybe that I don't was know if part that makes of sense it. Or not. I think I think it was just more the, you know, uh, or maybe secretly he hated it and he's like, oh gosh, don't do the same thing <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe was, not. I don't know. I'm just joking. I, I think it's just, I really do think it was just a lot more, you know, it's not practical for a woman because Back you're going to be yeah, stopping yeah. and starting, you know, work and you want something that you can transport if you have, you know. Right, right. Your, your husband moves to a different place or, you know, just, I think it was a big part of it. I mean, it's, it's very different times. Very you know? different, yeah. Very different yeah. times. And I mean, I, you know, um, my guidance counselors, even, you know, uh, it was all, there was no advice to go in any direction other than, you know, something like nursing or physical therapy or respiratory. You know, those were all the things that they were suggesting to me, even it's though I was so considered a top to think of that. math yeah. science student. Right. I mean, you know, with obvious, those were the you know, options. obvious skills and intellectual ability. And still it's sort of like, boy, you sure are smart, but yeah, these are your only options really. Yeah. I'm glad so, you were able to fight through it. That's pretty impressive. I did. I yeah, I did. I mean, I so when I you know when I realized that you know uh, my parents wanted me to transfer to a different school, I went right to the because I, I had some financial aid already, um, and I had some scholarship, and I went right to the financial aid office and listen. Um, I said, you know, my my parents want me to transfer out, and it's financial reasons, and um, and I said, is you know what can we do? I just, I upped my. I got, you know, more scholarship money. I got more work study hours and and I did stay, you know, but oh, I had, okay. but I had, you know, sort of, I said, listen, this is it. I got to get to this amount, bring the, the, you know, the dollars down to this amount in order to, you know, stay yeah. at this college. And, and they worked with me and they uh, saw the potential. And so, uh, you know, I did, I did finish out. Um, but because I had switched so late, you know, it didn't mean I crammed a lot of stuff into two years that normally would have been spread over like three years but um, right right yeah. but, but again but i mean you, you I, have the passion yeah, i had for the it. passion and and i really loved it and i had you know great support um you know of the the faculty that were in the the department and program and yeah and so, so that so you go through undergrad that's all undergrad yep, and then yeah to get to the level you're at then there's a whole lot more schooling, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so I, when I was um, getting close to being done, um, I, I was pretty, pretty sure I didn't want to think about going to grad school. Like it was like the furthest thing from my mind because I just, it had been pretty intense, you know, being a student, um, jamming things in the way I did to graduate on schedule. And um, the, the people that I, the, the faculty that were in my department were very closely connected. Um, with a uh, re research and development uh, center associated with General Electric. And so they had said, oh, you know, we should give you some contacts over at this company. And you probably, you know, they, it was a big, big facility. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I they were one of the giant industrial corporations yeah. back then, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I ended up, well, without much hassle at all, I got a job and uh, and went off, you know, was going off to work in a laboratory, um, research and development laboratory at GE. Um, but do when they I, do a lot of, like, chemical stuff as well? Oh, yeah. yeah. Are they kind of almost like, uh, oh, don't worry yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, they... Um, like DuPont or anything like that? Are they up there on that level? I'm not quite sure they're 
on that level. DuPont's one of the biggest ever, though, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm they own sure that plant that... right over there. Do they really? Yeah, it's a DuPont they... plant. Really? That seaweed. They're they're that... sucking it's... the. Uh, yeah, they're the carrageenan. Something out of yeah, the seaweed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Carrageenan. Twenty four um, hours yeah. a day, seven yeah. days a week. Yeah. I didn't realize that was DuPont. Yeah. 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 No, I mean GE was big. They were really big into polymers and silicones and and I worked I the area that I was in when I worked there was um was a polymer. Basically, I was working mostly on trying to um improve polymers so they were less flammable. So reduce the the flammability. And when you uh, say a polymer, is that like an uh, adhesive? No. A polymer. So a polymer is a term for um structures that are made out of like long chains which include a lot of carbons. Oh, yeah, um, But they're yeah, just yeah. really, really long, like, strands of, you know, big molecules, but all, like, in a string yeah. kind of arrangement. And is that usually so for... plastics and... For strength? It, yeah, for strength, structural integrity. Um, okay. You know, all, like, so plastics, you know, all your uh, plastic containers for foods and things like that. Oh, and plastic okay. yeah, furniture. Yeah. Right. And, uh, Anything that, yeah, okay, okay, now, I, and, now and I'm then picturing it, yeah. The area that I was in, actually, um, we were working on improving on the flame resistance of the um, plastics or the polymers, I'm using those terms kind of interchangeably, uh, that wrap around electrical wires. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, Because yeah. one of the problems in a, in a fire would be that all those plastics and polymers um, could melt and then start drip and then you've got this pooled up you know flammable material right um so i worked in the area of trying to develop you know basically develop additives that you could put into the polymers to reduce the flammability right so right. make them less flammable um but it was all sort of geared towards wiring plastic coatings around yeah, wiring okay. and stuff well, like that's, that i mean that's a major uh, yeah. source of most boat fires is the, the wiring because right. you get you know, people aren't aren't putting fuses where they need to be, and then the wire heats up heats too up, much current, yeah. and there's usually lint and dust bunnies all over, and you know, yeah. behind yeah. the walls, and then yeah. boom. And if you get the fiberglass, you should have made fiberglass less uh, fire <laughs> <laughs> or more fire resistant. Jeez, yeah. have you ever seen a boat fire? Uh, only pictures, you know, of them, but it's yeah. terrifying. I mean, and the the smoke that comes off okay. if you get one breath of it yes, you're right. down for a while you're you're yep. coughing right. you can't move it's i i could i've never been hit by pepper spray bless you Ooh, thank you i've never been hit by pepper spray but i've i've we had to try and fight a fire in, in charleston mm. years ago a catamaran caught on fire and we couldn't put it out because it just you'd think you would you'd, you'd empty out two or three big um fire extinguishers and that blackest smoke you ever saw, and then two minutes later, yep. boom, it's coming right back up. Yes, yep. And that yep. that one actually burnt to the waterline. That was crazy. Yeah, yeah. Fiberglass, yep. well, fiberglass resin, it's just, yep. isn't it just oil? You're the chemist, I can ask you this. Yeah. I'm, you know, honestly, I'm not sure what fiberglass resin's made out of, but it's, I'm sure it's precursors to yeah, yeah. polymers it's, it's and stuff. Be, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, did so, you know yeah. that with, with the West Sales, one of the reasons that the hulls are so uh, resistant to, like, blistering and all that sort of stuff and getting saturated, when they were building these was right during the resin or the um, the oil crisis oh, in the 70s. In the 70s, right. Which also affected the resin. And so they couldn't get uh, – they had taken, you know, 
hundreds of orders for these boats. And they charged, I believe it was $25,000. And then they couldn't get resin, like the normal stuff that they were they were yeah. used to. And so they had to outsource like some of the highest grade resins that they could because that was the only mm. stuff that was available, which ended up sort of leading to their bankruptcy. But the boats, the vast majority of the boats that they made were made out of like really high-end stuff. And that's why almost all the West sails that were made, if they haven't been destroyed in a storm or sunk at sea, they're still out plying the oceans. Oh, still, so the quality... Yeah, I mean, there's, there's been some that, yeah. you know, sit in the water for decades. They come out and there's no blisters on it. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. It's, yeah. My little boat. <laughs> <laughs> I always like to tell that story because I, yeah. I don't know. It yeah. seems sort of unique. What, what year was yours built? Ours is an 85. 85. Okay, okay. Yeah, I think it's 85. Some of them. Yeah. I, 85. Cape Dory's been building boats forever, haven't they? Yeah, no, I think. I think the earliest ones are at least a decade older. I think yeah, our yeah. previous I think our previous boat was a seventy eight. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I think that was a seventy eight. Which one did you like more? Oh, this one. This one? Yeah. Just bigger, well, yeah, more just comfortable. Bigger, more spacious, you know, you, you know, just you can have like, you know, there's certain places where you can have something set out and you don't have to worry about, Oh, I gotta stow this right away, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, right. feeling like you can expand your space a little bit. You can sort of treat it a little more like a house, I think. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? for sure. No, it's it's a perfect size. It's a, just the perfect size for two people. And uh, yeah, very happy with, very happy with the boat. And it just, uh, you know, I mean, both of the Cape Dories, I just felt really safe in them. They just well, really they, solid. Yeah, and, they have you know, a very good reputation. And, yeah, yeah, just. I think okay. that's that's probably one of the most important things for sailing you know when especially if you're if you're going out a good ways and all that it knowing that that boat you have that confidence in it i think makes the whole the whole thing just much more enjoyable if you're if you're out yeah. there and you're you're questioning a lot of the things on the boat and whether or not it can stand up then you're it's almost like you're walking on eggshells and you don't yeah. want to be doing that when you're floating on the ocean no nope. that's for sure no nope. It's all good. Have you ever yeah. had any uh, scary incidents on the old uh, on the old uh, boats and over see. the years? Yeah, sure. Um, let's see. Uh, on our previous boat, the twenty eight Cape Dory, I remember one time. We, this was actually on the Long Island Sound. Um, we were trying to get to uh, what was called Port Jefferson, which is on the south side of the Sound, um, and uh, and we were trying to get there to you know beat a storm, but we didn't make it. And so, um, that happens was, a lot. Like, you yeah. Know, yeah. <laughs> you know, thunderstorm. And I just remember, and our kids are still pretty young. Um, so Russ basically said, oh, you know, I'm going to take over and, and it was r- really, really rough. So he just, you know, closed us in, you know, put up all the boards, closed us in the boat. And I went down with the kids and just hung out and he was out there, you know, but by that point we had, you know, the sails were down and he was just motoring, you know, but yeah, you know, out there by himself it. and we're just, you know, rolling all around. And I can just that, picture was, Russ was, out there, hair flowing, <laughs> wind splashing him and he's just stoically at that tiller. But it, that, that definitely stands out as one of the scariest, scariest times um, in my mind. And then and it, it was like probably the first time we really weathered a bad storm. You well, know, the, it's, on the boat. it's a, you know, I've always tried to describe what it's like to people who don't, who haven't sailed or, or just really don't go out on the water much. 
you know, you can, you can almost compare it to say being out and camping in the woods and going through a thunderstorm because it affects you a lot more. The wind's blowing the tent around and it gets wet and all that stuff, but you're at least on level ground. Right. You add that element of the actual boat being yeah. moved up and down and side to side and getting slammed by waves. And you're in this, I, I think of it as like a three dimensional relationship with mother nature at that point <laughs> where she's she's really giving you uh, a good reason to realize how powerful it really can be yeah 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 um I, I, when when we were first first working our way up the coast um there were times when you know the the intensity and size of the waves was a pretty new experience yeah you know and again on the 28 you know those sort of like you know, you'd be like heading into a wave and you're not really sure what's on the other side yeah, of it. it blocks and, you right you know, out, it right? Just, yeah, there's, there's the first couple of times of that. It was like, well, and that's scary. one of those things, yeah, because uh, most sailboats, like small boats like we have, if you're standing in the cockpit, your eye line is maybe five feet above the water. Right. And so yeah. if you have 10 foot or 15 foot waves, I mean, that top of that wave is way up there and it looks twice as high as it actually is, yeah. you know, cause yeah. you're actually involved with what's going on, but I don't know. It yeah. can be scary. That was pretty scary. And, uh, and I guess maybe the first time or two we encountered fog was really scary. Oh uh, my gosh. Again, that's know, a new right? experience for us. Well, you know? but you must be a master at it now, right? We're pretty Old comfortable with it Maine? now. Well, and we also now have, uh, we, we installed radar last year. So, Oh, well, I saw we that. We never yeah. had radar before. Yeah, I don't have it either. Do you guys have AIS though, right? We do now. Yes. Yeah. 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 We do. Yeah. That one, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I'm I'm being sort of irresponsible, solely relying on that. But I don't know. I I'm really not in fog all that often. Once I get away from Maine far enough, then you don't encounter it. <laughs> not yeah. I, in the Southern Ocean a bit, but down there it doesn't matter because there's any traffic. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, the most fog I've ever had on like an offshore quote unquote trip was, was just coming up from Ocean City. Um, just because yeah. it was that time of year, it was still early enough where the Labrador was, had so much cold, cold water in it coming down yeah. and that hot, wet, tropical air was coming up. And I think I went through like four days of fog. Wow. And there was yeah. a good amount of traffic, too. I, I was listening to fog horns from tankers and all that stuff most nights, and that's yeah. always a little spooky. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's something we, we, we've never done an overnight. So Russ has talked about wanting to try to do an overnight sometime. Yeah. Because we've never done it. So, yeah. Yeah, to go do it. Yeah. You can yeah. even you can just do an out and back where you, you take off from here and just go out past Matinicus and keep going. Mm. Enjoy the night. Right now, I got up this morning at, uh, I think it was 3, to see the alignment oh, that's going it? on. Did you see I it? Saw, I saw it where the moon, the crescent, had just come up, and I believe it's Venus is right next to that, and everything was just super orange. And then you had, I believe it's Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. And maybe yeah. Neptune's up there. Or no, oh, I think it's Uranus. I, I think sure. there's five right now. Uh -huh. Oh, that, that you can see. Five are in alignment? I believe there's five in alignment. I could be wrong on that, but um, yeah, I got up and was just, I saw that moon and knew I had to get up. So I got up and walked down there and went and saw oh, it. Oh, cool. It's yeah. so neat. I mean, when you're out sailing, you see that stuff all the time because that's sort of the next 
thing close enough to Netflix that you have out there. <laughs> uh, so it's a little easier just to roll back over and go to bed here. But uh, I don't know. It, it looked pretty magical, especially with that crescent moon coming yeah. in. That was yeah. cool. Very cool. So. Now, which direction were you looking at? I like was looking... Over that away, so the moon was was just just in the northeast. Yeah, that's gonna say okay. And then yeah. I want to say Jupiter was probably over here. I mean, it's it's stretching over the whole sky at uh-huh. this point. But Venus is right next to the moon, so it's it's what uh, they call it, it's in conjunction. So whenever it, two uh, bodies get really close up there, they always say it's con- conjunction. Conjunction, yeah. Huh. I used to be a bit of an astronomer guy, uh, more of a stargazer, but I used to give uh, lectures uh, when I lived in the Caribbean. Oh, okay. Take a bunch of yeah. people out on a boat, and I have a little laser pointer, and you could, you could actually oh, see it could. like a lightsaber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you could point yeah. out. So I had to learn all the constellations, lots of stuff about the stars. And again, like chemistry, I mean, it was, I found that it was sort of a passion. I didn't have an outlet for it, uh, but then I sort of learned about other people doing this and then thought oh okay well, i could do that we've got this huge boat we can take 50 people out on it and then i can give this lecture and it just grew and grew and grew to a point where it was even entertaining for kids so i learned um the greek mythology and oh, all okay. that so i'd be telling yeah. those stories about like leo the lion and orion and all these other you know crazy stories trying to be as animated as possible and and it's all in, not pitch black, but, you know, it's in the Caribbean. It's dark. There's very little light pollution. Uh-huh. And the stars are just absolutely amazing. And that was always, that was a lot of fun. It became, it was, it was a pain to do it because it was always like 9 or 10 o'clock at night after a long day's work. And I'm uh-huh. like, why did I sign up for this? <sighs> <laughs> but then I'd get out on the boat and get into it. And I'd come back so happy, like, oh, that was so good. And people really enjoyed it and all that stuff. That's so. cool. Yeah. Who knows, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's funny yeah. how those things come out. And it is, it's really nice, though, when you do find not only, like, a purpose, but it's, like, that, or not only a passion, but, yeah, I don't know, I kind of feel like sometimes it gives you a purpose as well. Mm-hmm. Where you're sort of like, ah, yeah, this is what I'm, like, meant to do. Yeah, you want to share that passion. You definitely Get, do, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and spend as much time doing it as possible. Yeah. Except yeah. that I think there is like that fine line where you can you can burn yourself out. Uh, I know I've I've sort of danced on that line a few times being out at sea, but I think there's more than just uh, the purpose of it coming into play, especially when it comes to the solitude that has a uh, a way to mess with your brain. That I've I've only really ever felt it on one trip, uh, like the first trip. I I never would have even considered the thought of going crazy out at sea, but after the second trip, I definitely could see how how it can happen, huh. and it can happen like that. And then all of a sudden, you sort of just lose your grip on uh, on I don't know how your brain thinks. It's really uh, interesting. So so you're aware that it's happening. Yeah, I was. I became very aware that uh, I wasn't uh, I wasn't in full control of my thoughts anymore. Hmm. Uh, just to set it up, I guess. So it's uh, the second trip. I take off from here. Two, three, four weeks into it, get up to just about the Arctic Circle. That's when you're trying to do the north. Yeah, the and then I got passage. turned away yep. and back into the Atlantic, but I couldn't come back here because the hurricanes were already rolling. 
And so I went across the Atlantic, past the Azores, and in between the Azores and the Cape Verdes, and again, this is peak COVID, so this is 2020, 2020, um, and it was just, I couldn't get into any of these countries if I wanted to, and uh, I just remember feeling completely stuck at sea, and the engine had been running for a long time. I had gone through the Azores high. It was like really hot. There's no wind engine noise barely sleeping um and then there was one day it started raining and i'm down below and the engine noise is twice as loud it's even hotter and everything's sort of closed up but i couldn't catch the water because it was filled with sahara dust and i'm thinking to myself there's nowhere i can go i can't get off this boat i'm you know essentially out in the middle of the atlantic ocean and yeah it just I remember going up on deck and having this strange feeling of, you know, what it would be like to just jump overboard. <laughs> yeah. And that's something you never want to actually even entertain. It's one thing to think about it in context of like, okay, I don't want that to happen. How am I going to prevent that? But Or falling overboard. But actually thinking about like jumping overboard, that was <laughs> where I, was, I sort of knew – I think it's time to set a course for land. And the only <laughs> land I could go to was, was back to the United States at that time. But um, after I sort of chose to do that instead of try and figure out something else to do, then, then I was okay. But there was a little time where I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Donald Crowhurst from no. the, basically the first race to go around the world solo and nonstop. It was 1968 and 69 called the golden globe. And he oh, went sure heard of it. Yeah. 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 So Robin Knox Johnson. Uh, well, actually this is the book I've always recommended to people a voyage for madmen. That's all about it, but it, it really, it's like half about the race and then half about Donald because he went out and he was the last one to leave. His boat wasn't ready he was under financial pressure and ended up going, realizing he really shouldn't be doing this, but um, felt like there was no way he could just turn around and go back because he'd be ruined. And so he started to try and sort of fake his reports of where oh, he was. He was the one that faked the whole thing, right? Yeah. And so he's out and he's just basically hanging out in the South Atlantic and he actually made landfall at one point because he needed plywood because his boat was that bad. But as time went on, more and more of the other competitors dropped out because he was sort of thinking, well, I'll hang out. The rest of these guys will go past and then I'll get in line behind them and I'll come in like fourth place. And la-di-da, nobody cares about me, but I at least got to do it. And as more and more people dropped out and dropped out, um, all of a sudden it was like he had he became almost a competitor to win and he had already filed back in and then the other multi-hull ended up pushing harder than it should have because they thought he was on his tail and he ended up sinking and then it was like Donald Crowhurst is going to win this thing and or at least win the fastest time and i think when i think it was when he heard that that's when that it just snapped him cuz he had been lying for so long and he's by himself i mean could you imagine the internal stress and guilt and confusion and oh i couldn't even imagine it but now i sort of i don't know i guess i get like just a glimpse into that but he ended up 
they surmise jumping overboard and just oh it. really because yeah uh, they, they found his boat drifting out there a container ship picked it up and now i think it's on an island in the caribbean called cayman brock it's still there it's just a hull on the beach huh. well they, so how is he i mean i remember hearing about this story how was he able to report being places when he hadn't been there i mean well, that was because he, he was he was a brilliant. Uh, he was like an inventor, and he knew a lot about electricity and all those sort of systems. And his thing was that he wanted to make this super technological boat that sort of sailed itself and did all its own things. But he never had enough time and money to finish it all before he left. Huh. Uh, but he was, you know, obviously back then it was all celestial navigation. But they were reporting their position because most of them had old Marconi radios on there. Okay, so they were reporting them on a radio. And yeah, then, and, and so he geez. was. He had two logbooks. He had the real one, and then <laughs> he was making this fake one, doing all the calculations. So that, you know, if he needed to, he'd be able to present this to the committee afterwards and they could look at it and be like, wow, yeah, he went around the world. And, yeah, I mean, I'm sure just the thought of doing that alone would drive you crazy. I mean, when they found his journal, I guess the the final bunch of pages was like 25,000 words of gibberish. So he had obviously snapped, probably kept writing, doing all this stuff, and then... Wow. I don't know, but I recommend it. A voyage for madmen. Holy cow! It's uh, they actually made a sort of a documentary movie. Uh, they they've made a couple movies about it, but one of them called Deep Water is really good, and that's that's pretty much this book in a nutshell, uh, with lots of uh, the original footage and all that stuff. But they made like a dramatization movie or a regular movie mm. about Donald Crowhurst. Yeah, and it was. I think it was with the guy from Downington Abbey. Oh. One of those English guys. Huh. So, who hmm. knows? I don't know. Interesting. It's really yeah. compelling stuff, and people always laugh when I tell them it was an inspiration for me to want to go. And they're like, what's the name of it? Voyage for Mad Men. Mm-hmm. That's the one I, that's what I think <laughs> I want to do. That was inspired me. Yeah. <laughs> that one, The Perfect Storm, God Forsaken Sea. You know, they, I tried not to have a scary a scary named book. And I think sailing into oblivion can be taken a million different ways. I don't think it's too, uh, it's not trying to dramatize it at all or make it uh, scary or anything like that. What do you Mm -hmm. think? I I think it's a good name. Not bad. Yeah, not bad at all. No, I like, it was a good read. Oh, well, thank you. For your, for your, Coming from a professor, that's pretty uh, pretty big plots. Obviously, I'm not an, uh, a distinguished author by any means, but if you go by what people tell me, they seem to like it a lot. So yeah, it's a really good read. Actually, probably going to read it again soon. Yeah. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. What? Well, I wonder if you have the most updated version of it. You just gave us a copy recently. Oh yeah, yeah. That's oh, right. Oh, is that updated? Yes, yes, that one. Oh, it's been updated. Well, it's just one of those things where you know you go through it, and and I was so oblivious to how you correctly edit a book, and I mean it. It takes so much work to actually come up with something perfect and final like that, you know, where there aren't typos and there aren't like I. I'm sure there still probably are a few in there, but it took the help of quite a few people reading through it and sending me. 
you know, lists of like this, 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 <laughs> and I'd correct them at, there was one, one woman, Elizabeth, uh, who she's a, a lawyer in DC and she ripped through it in a weekend and corrected probably 98% of it, <laughs> sent it right back to me. And I uploaded the new version that day. It was. So you've reprinted it. Uh, well, okay. I, that's a nice part about when you do it on Amazon, you don't actually, they, they, uh, print to order. So oh. I, you upload your manuscript, you pick the cover and all that stuff and the pictures, you make it, and then they don't print it until people order it because they can just oh. whip them out. And I can order author's copies, so I'll typically try to have maybe 50 or something like that because, like, Lobster Fest, when that comes up, I'll probably be selling oh, okay. them there. Yep. We sell them yep. here at the marina and all that stuff. But, um, but yeah, I mean... For the general public, they, if they order it on Amazon, they'll just print it up and then send it right out. So, and within just a few days, it takes me a month to get the author's copies. But you know, well, that's a bulk order. Yeah, exactly. So. I think you can order like a thousand copies if you wanted to. So, you need a bigger boat. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I need more people to buy it. <laughs> but don't we? I'm I'm actually very very fortunate because I think I've read that. Most people that, that self-publish on Amazon, you're typically looking at maybe 250 sales and then before it sort of drifts off into oblivion. Because it's, they, I think on Amazon, because remember it started as a book selling website, yep. Um, yep. they've got 6 million titles for sale on that. And so that's a, a huge, huge uh, marketplace. But that book's a pretty niche book and there's not a lot of people that go out and do that sort of stuff so yeah, well i imagine it's kind of timeless yeah you know? yeah it's, well i i would you know maybe i should get you to write a review of it <laughs> 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 oh you weren't talking about the book <laughs> uh, you're talking about this subject no <laughs> no i was talking about the book oh, i appreciate a, that oh man well and you know on that of... on that subject though of like sort of creating stuff russ russ had mentioned really briefly that uh you have patents. Like you've created I, chemical I had things. had one patent. <laughs> oh, you have one patent. One patent. Can you tell yeah. us about it? Um, or oh is gosh. it a secret? No, it, well, it's been a super long time ago. The patent I had, and actually it wouldn't be an even, I was working for GE at the time. Oh, okay. So the patent is actually owned by the company. Mm. You sort of sign your rights over when you work for a company like that. Oh, right, right, yeah. right. But it was a patent um, for a... Basically for flame retardant additives for um, wiring. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you get a and little piece of that, though? No. They took no. it all? They take, they take so it that's all. That's why they're No, giants. that's part of what, yeah. yeah. Mean, you sign over your rights to you know any of that technology yeah. when you're in a company like that. But did you but go through the actual process of getting the patent done and everything? No, no. Oh, I, they do we worked with a Yeah, we worked with a patent lawyer that was part of the company and... Um, but it was kind of an interesting story because I remember it was, I, you know, when I was, when I was working, at, I was a technician, um, you know, still just had my bachelor's degree. So I reported to um, a PhD and he was my boss um, and he didn't do lab work. I did the lab work, you know, but I, I reported to him and we'd outline my experiments. And I just remember one day outlining some experiments and, um, and the, the, the mixture that we ended up getting patented was something that um, 
we had outlined a whole pile of things, and I kind of threw in an extra one um, that wasn't really part of what he and I had outlined, but I threw it in anyways, and it actually turned out, this is called what's serendipitous, and it actually turned out that the thing that I sort of threw in as an afterthought yeah. was what actually worked. Oh, really? And got patented. Whoa, that's pretty <laughs> so cool. So it was kind of a funny story. So you oh. just had sort of the hunch on it. I guess. I, such a long time ago, I don't even remember it that that well, but it was just like... Well, the way I picture it, and I do this often, <laughs> just like with Russ weathering that storm. You guys are all in there, the batch is being, you know, mixed together, and you somehow distract them, dump the little vial in, <laughs> and nobody knows the better, but... Until it actually works, and then you could admit it. Were they were they very pleased about it, or were they uh, a little bit like, okay, easy? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I guess it turned out to be you know a successful composition that you know was used on. Uh, they must have questioned it and, though, right? Weren't they uh, like, well, how did that get in there, <laughs> Elaine? Oh. <laughs> a word, please. <laughs> hey, it works, so... <laughs> yeah, I guess. Probably, they probably didn't worry too much about it at that point. They were like, yes, yeah, yeah. we are successful now. Oh, gosh. But, yeah, that is pretty was, cool, though. Yeah. And is your but, name on it, at least? Our names were not on it. <gasps> no. Do you at least have a copy of the actual patent or something? Oh, I did it one time. Framed on a <laughs> wall somewhere, time. I think, yeah. Because there's something to that. I mean, you've created something worth stamping it and being like yes this is this is my gift to the world and think about it how many uh how many fires have have not escalated because because you dumped that little violin behind your guys back (laughs) think about that it could literally be hundreds of thousands of lives you've saved do you ever think of that no you should (laughs) i would I like to think I'm, that my book might inspire people, or conversely, it might scare people away from trying to attempt sailing around the world, thus saving a few lives. <laughs> I have a vivid imagination. I spend I a lot of time alone. <laughs> it's not always just hanging out with Murphy. <laughs> well, do you have any any? Because um, we're actually we're we're at like an hour and ten minutes. Believe it or oh, not. Oh wow. Goes by fast, doesn't it? It does. It sure sometimes does. I yeah, sometimes yeah. I never even if I if I get really into it and I don't look at it. There were there are a few episodes that went over two hours. Where really? It's like whoa! It's like a time warp. Yeah. Uh, huh. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Do you have any uh, any closing closing thoughts about? Uh, I don't know. I guess but, anything. Well, you started to ask about education, so. Oh, um, oh well, yeah, because yeah, so, I, I didn't want to I didn't want to totally grill you on all of it. I have I have like a million questions about higher education, um, specifically like what is tenure and how does that work? Uh, Were you a yeah. tenured professor? Yes, I was. And what is that? Yeah. OK, well, so tenure, um, most yeah, most colleges and universities will have a system where. If a faculty member has been there, and it varies a little bit, usually six to seven years, um, you can apply for tenure. Um, so, it, you know, it means that you have to demonstrate that you have um, done a very good job in, in the areas that you're evaluated for. Yeah. Um, so at, at a place like where I was, then it was going to be, you know, teaching, uh, scholarships, research, which are lumped together, 
and, and service. So you put together a huge, um, you know, document that summarizes all your activities. So like a, you know, a detailed resume mm. of what you've done over this period of time at the institution. And then usually it's going to also involve like writing um, some kind of a narrative. So you write about what you've done and you know, provide context. Is that like a, a dissertation or something like that? No, I wouldn't call it a dissertation because I think of dissertations as being, you know, summaries of research and data mm-hmm. and all that. It's just more on a narrative about, you know, what, what you've done in these areas that you're evaluated. Yeah. You know? So, again, I was at a teaching-focused, mostly teaching-focused institution, so that's going to, you know, sort of be the top priority is to demonstrate that you're a really good teacher and... Um, and usually you have to provide documentation like student evaluations and things like that. Um, oh, really? And, and also usually the process will also include um, having other people like within your department and oh, peer, insti- review peer, you. Review, yeah. peer review you. And, I only know uh, these terms from movies. Okay. Okay. I'm just going um, just to be honest. <laughs> and also usually, at least where I was, uh, the process to tenure also involved having external reviewers. Um, so you'd have to have like two external reviewers. So you put together this big dossier, you know, with your resume and your narrative and supporting documents and so forth. And it also gets sent to these external reviewers. Um, and they're usually told to focus mostly on like the scholarship research area because they can, you know, look at that from the context of somebody, you know, on the outside yeah. Thinking about, you know, the impact of the work this person has done and so forth. Um, to put this whole packet together. Um, Which it, takes what? It sounds like that must take like a year. Um, well, I, I mean, a couple months. You'd be yeah. working on it for a few months usually, um, pulling it all together. Jeez. Um, and then uh, it, it, how it exactly, like where it goes exactly will depend on the institution. But um, like some institutions would have like a, some kind of a faculty review group. Um, usually it's going to be like an elected group of faculty who would look over all the materials for your application and then, you know, make a recommendation, which maybe, again, it's going to depend on the institution, might go to um, a vice president. So, that, you know, the committee, the faculty committee makes a re- recommendation to a vice president who mm-hmm. also reads all these materials. And then a vice president, you know, goes through all of it and then makes like a recommendation to a president and usually the president of the institution would have like sort of the final Oh, okay. You know look and yeah make a determination as to whether this person's gonna be granted tenure or not. So tenure usually means then you know, you have a job, you're guaranteed you have a job for um, for the, the rest, rest of, of your you're like it, untouchable. It, 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 That's how Hollywood makes it look. Yeah. Like once you get tenure Yeah, you're untouchable. I mean it's it's harder. I think it's definitely harder to remove somebody who's already tenured right right um, so you know in that sense yeah you, you're untouchable um and, you have and to, the process I mean, is going to be a lot more complicated if you've got somebody that you yeah, want to unless you do something like totally egregious or yeah. something like that but yeah so then yeah you're, you're basically guaranteed and I, I i always took it that that was sort of the the stamp that says i am a value to academia I've proved it, and that's why I get, you know, I get this, like, pass that says, yes, I should belong here no matter who starts, you know, who's my boss or whatever, and if they don't like me or this or that, I still have my little, ha mm-hmm. Is that sort of yeah. how it is? Yeah, pretty much. So did you walk around a little chin up, you know, a little, uh, 
<laughs> was it like a tenured club? <laughs> yeah, it's not really my style. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not. It's a very nice place to be for sure. Oh, I'm sure. Um, yeah, it's a very nice place to be, especially because you know some smaller colleges uh, are, are struggling. You know, dropping you know enrollments and so forth. It's right, right. Nice oh, these you, days. Yeah, these days. Yeah, these days especially. Um, so yeah, it's it's a nice place to be, um, having that sort of job security and so forth. Um, oh, I'm sure. Well, and they yeah, yeah I mean, because at yeah. that point, then it's it's basically if the school has like a certain retirement age or something like that, you could basically work until then, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, usually there isn't a retirement age per se in oh, most okay. academic institutions. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, people people can work, you know, into their well into their seventies. Um, oh heck and, yeah. yeah! Well yeah. past that, yeah. I my my chemistry professor in high school, Mr. Thomas. I don't know how old he was, but he was like a World War II uh, hero. I mean, this mm-hmm. this guy was absolutely bananas. He was mm-hmm. huge, but he had blown out his knees. I don't know how. Probably mm-hmm. in the war, maybe in mm-hmm. Korea. I think he'd been in multiple wars, and. Uh, Oh, my God, he was just a character. But I, like I said, I was always a pretty bad student. So school, <laughs> I don't know, it just never, it never clicked. The, mm-hmm. the, only, the only schooling that ever clicked with me was geography. And, uh, and then once I started doing, like, sailing school stuff, like, all these things, math for the navigation, loved it all of a sudden. Uh, hmm. geography and with the charts, loved it and everything else. I don't know. I just, and then I, I'm sure my English teacher probably read the book <laughs> and probably thought how on earth did Jerome Rand ever even complete this? I mean, I, I was just terrible. I never, I just couldn't, I couldn't, I wasn't ever interested in any of it, I guess. Yeah. It was, it was strange. I mean, and it's, it's, but now it's like interesting for me to sit with, like a fully tenured, super intellectual <laughs> professor who's just finished out this. How how long were you doing it? Thirty six years. Thirty six years. I do have a good memory, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I, I don't know. It. Uh, you look back on your life, and obviously, I I probably wish I would have tried harder uh, mm-hmm. at that sort of stuff, but not necessarily because I no. I I love what I do now and what I have been doing and all mm-hmm. that stuff and. Mm-hmm. Had I been a great student, I doubt I would have gone in that direction. Uh, yeah. and, and you never know, right? But yeah. it's nice that uh, two people of such vastly different intellectual capacity can sit and have a conversation for an hour <laughs> and 15 minutes. That's pretty cool, right? I think you're overstating the, <laughs> the, the intellectual capacity. What, of but, you? Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I doubt that. I have a feeling the brain power that's sitting across the table from me is a quite extensive. <laughs> oh, man. Who yeah. knows? Who knows? Um, Who knows? Yeah. 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 Well, I, I can't believe I'm so glad you came and, and chatted with me on this. And now I got you and I got Russ. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be hard to sit down with Murph next time. And be like, Murph, what are your thoughts on it? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I love sitting down with Murph. He is. He's always his. I, did you listen to the one I did with him? No, more recently? no, I didn't know that. He gets but. into the in and outs of scalloping and what it's like oh. being on those those boats yeah. or those ships, yeah. and uh, yeah. you know, day in and day out, how you the the amount of 
physical labor that goes into it compared to even like lobstering. He's like scalping's way harder. Oh, really? Constant bending over, picking up, bending over, and all the cutting and all that stuff. He's like lobstering's easy. Just measure it, band it, throw it in the thing, done. But I I don't even know how how exactly do they scoop up the scallops. Uh, So what they have, they 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 drag behind this this basically these this dredge. It's like the weighted net, and that goes along the floor of the sea, oh. and it picks up all these scallops, and then it comes up, and then it just gets dumped right on the deck of the boat. Oh, and then you sort. Huh. And then you're, you're bending over, collecting them into these big buckets that probably weigh 50, 60 pounds. You fill the bucket, and then you pick that up and carry it over to the, the cutting table, and then you're going through, and you're cutting all of them out. And, you know, throwing the shell, you cut keep the meat and then that goes in the little hole and then after that is complete and this whole time the thing's dragging again so it's collecting more and then you go in and you have to bag them up into i believe 40 or 50 pound bags of just the scallop meat and then those have to be hauled from there down into the freezer and and then by the time you finish that there's more scallops on deck and you go right into and they'll do it for 20 hours Wow. Yeah, because if they're on the scallops, they they just can't stop. They just keep going. And that was, I think they go out for 10 to 14 days at a time. Wow. Yeah. So, but he said, you know, pretty much like, like most things, um, you do it for a couple of trips, you get through all the aches and pains, your body adapts to it. And then it's not a huge, huge problem. It's always the first, you know, it's the first couple of trips that you go on where your your body's so sore and your hands are cut <laughs> up and i i mean i even felt it when i came back to the the boatyard you know i had been trying to write and stuff like that for pretty much the whole winter and so not a whole lot of activity was going on right. uh, and i was up yeah. in michigan so it's not like i'm out jogging or anything like that and uh yeah you get back into physical and it's pretty laborious uh to say the least out here yeah picking up all those stands and blocks so but now i feel like i could do it all day every day so mm-hmm. yep. without waking up groaning like oh gosh <laughs> all right <laughs> so i don't know it's good i i've always told people though my my favorite part about working here is just working with these guys and the the people like yourself and russ and and everybody else it's it's a great little family that we've got up here and it's it's kind of like cheers, you know, everybody knows your name. <laughs> Everybody's got, you know, everybody's, yeah. but it seems like for the very most part, uh, everybody's got great attitude. Everybody's just trying to have fun, get their stuff done and, uh, you know, enjoy, yeah. enjoy the little bit of summer that we get up here in Maine. Yep. So. It's a pretty special place. I yeah. definitely agree. Well, Elaine, thank you yeah. so much for coming on here and who knows, maybe, uh, if I'm still here in the fall, we'll do a little wrap up, find out how the summer went. Mm-hmm. Find out about the overnight. <laughs> the I overnight think you know, sale. the <laughs> other one, just real quick, would be um, it's an overnight to get down to Gloucester. And or, that, Prov- or Providence. Ooh, Providence yeah. might take. Well, if think, you go through yeah. the canal. Yeah. Yeah, you could do that. I know uh-huh. Gloucester takes us. I've done that trip, and it's typically 24 hours. Okay. 23, 24 hours, something like that. And that's with decent wind. That's the tricky part in the Gulf of Maine. I mean, it's it's so fickle with the wind. You never really know. I almost always get becalmed at some point. Mm-hmm. But then other times it blows like 30. So it's it's always a little strange. But could be a nice little trip. 
go down, go to the crow's nest, have a few beers, <laughs> and then beat it on out of there. <laughs> Is that in Gloucester? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. oh yeah. I, yeah uh, I have one other book recommendation. Besides this one, uh, is uh, Sebastian Younger's book, The Perfect Storm. Oh, I've read that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. oh yeah. Yeah, I re- I, actually, another one I'd like to reread. I read it when it first came out. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah long that. Time, yeah. I mean, the, the movie's great and all, but the book yeah, is... Yeah, I read the book. It, the history of, of not yeah. only Gloucester, but also the yeah. sword fishing fleet on the Atlantic coast. I mean, you learn yeah. so much from that. I mean, yeah. wow. Unbelievable. Yeah, so. no, that was a good book. Yep. Definitely was. Well, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, well, we'll see you around because you're still here.